those from uh, Clearwater Presbyterian Church in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, send a special greeting to you, especially that of your and our beloved uh, Matt and Amy Klein and their wonderful children. As we come to God's word, we acknowledge that the fact that God has given us a word means that God has revealed himself to us. God desires to be known by his people. He loves his people and shows it by revealing himself to them. And so give your special attention here as we read Psalm 121 and as we uh, look intently into it today to receive what God has for us. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I'll give you a moment to turn there. could have had the page number for you beforehand, which would have been helpful. That's on page 516, in case you're still looking. Psalm 121, the Song of Ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we come not because of the cleanness of our hands or the purity of our hearts. No, we come because you, Lord, have spoken And you have invited us to come. You have commanded that we come. And so we come. We come to hear your word. We come to know the one who made us and the one who also has redeemed us. Lord God, would you speak this morning. May our ears hear, may our hearts be pierced, and may our lives be transformed as those who are kept by the God that we trust. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As many of you know, in knowing uh, Matt and Amy Klein, who spent a good amount of time with you, uh, our family was with them in the Middle East uh, for several years. Uh, And while we were there, we had many, many precious friendships, not only the Kleins, but one such friendship was with a man that I'll I'll call Aaron, for the sake of simplicity with his name. Now, Aaron's heritage was of the Kurdish people. Now, it's possible you've never heard of these people, and as Wisconsinites, when I say Kurd, naturally you think, cheese, right? But the Kurds, the Kurds are an ancient people. They have their own language, their own culture, their own religion. However, in the aftermath of World War II, when nations' borders were being redrawn, the Kurds were ignored. They were left without a land. They were forgotten. Now, in the land that my friend Aaron lived within, or that he grew up in, they were even forbidden to speak their language. They couldn't show their colors or have any ethnic identity piece that was visible or celebrated. Well, years later, in that same nation, a local Kurdish militia began to fight for their rights. And Aaron remembers this militia because uh, on one occurrence, they came to his small village at five in the morning, and they were on the run from the national military. And they showed up demanding supplies to keep on fighting, albeit at gunpoint. 
they demanded them. And two hours later, the national military arrived. They gathered the fathers in the village and they punished them in front of their wives and their children. See, his family, his neighborhood, right, his village, they, were have, they had no protector, no security, no helper. Even Aaron himself, as one of eight children in a poverty-stricken family, his care, the care for him by his family was distracted at best. And Aaron, as a Muslim, he would often ask and wonder, where is Allah? He was a Muslim. Where is Allah in this? Who would keep my family my village, my nation. And Aaron, for all intents and purposes, began to live like one who could only depend on himself. Who will keep me? Me. That's a crassly American way of thinking, right? In our independence. Who will keep us? Me. I will lift myself up by my own efforts. Now, Aaron's story may be a world away from yours, sure. But if there's any piece in Aaron's story this morning that relates to you, it means that Psalm 121 indeed is for you. In the last few years, has the world not changed rapidly under our feet? The nation that you live within has been experiencing many changes, increasingly less secure. The dollar dips in your future, your children's, your grandchildren's future grows fuzzy. Now, it might not be the, just the threat of danger in your life, but perhaps danger has already struck your life, right? Through suffering, through loss, tragedy. And perhaps you're asking, where is a helper who might help me, who might care for me? But even parents and peers at times are distracted, and you wonder like Aaron, who will keep me? Who will keep me? It may be that in the face of threats or real suffering, you've reached out to other helpers' offers, right? Substances, harmful relationships, things that just distract us or numb us on the journey of life. Or like Aaron and like many Americans, you've begun to believe that your only helper, your only keeper, is you. Friends, Psalm 121 is for you today. It's God's word to us this morning. And it teaches us this. This is maybe the, the main idea because God is our, because God is our unfailing keeper, you, you can daily live like one who is eternally secure. You can daily live like one who is eternally secure. Now we're going to see this uh, throughout the psalm in verses 1 and 2. We'll see that he is our unfailing keeper and that he personally upholds all of creation. In verses 3 through 6, we see that he is undistracted in his care for his people. And finally, in verses 7 and 8, we'll see that our unfailing keeper is unrelenting. He's unrelenting in his care for all eternity. And because of all of this, if you trust this keeper, if you trust this Lord, you can daily live like one who is eternally secure. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Now, the psalmist, in, as he begins this psalm, what's he doing? He's looking upward to the hills. Now, the most common understanding of this passage and the way we sing it or pray it, we think the hills are great, the God who made them is great, right? Great. That's what we should do. We look at the mountains and we think of the one who made them. And that's not a wrong instinct when we look at mountains and we say, wow, who could make these, right? 
But in Psalm 121, there's a bit of a, a context shift that we need to acknowledge here. In Psalms 120 through 134, the psalmists, the Israelites, they were traveling. These, and these psalms here were actually meant to be sung on their way up to Jerusalem. That's why these psalms were called the Song of Ascent, right? Ascending up to God's city in Jerusalem. And so these Israelites who are singing these things, they're doing something. They're heading there to celebrate an annual festival called the Passover, right? The Passover they were remembering when God had saved them in Egypt out of slavery. And they're on their way journeying to go to, the, to God's city, to Jerusalem, to celebrate that redemption moment that happened in the past. And so they're not just sitting out on their porch in the morning saying, wow, the hills. No, they're looking at these hills and they're thinking, we're about to go through those hills. And typically, in a traveler's perspective, two consistent ideas emerge when you're looking at the hills. One, danger. And two, other helpers offers. So one, danger. Long journeys were dangerous in the ancient world. Certainly they still can be. But overhead for the travelers was a scorching sun, a lack of uh, water or food, perhaps difficult terrain like climbing hills or mountains. But beyond just the natural elements, the hills were notorious for thieves. This is a place where you would be at in great danger of someone coming out of, of hurting you in some way, of robbing you and leaving you for dead. And so the psalmist in verse 1, he's actually asking the question, right? He looks to the hills and he says, who will protect me? Who will keep me as I go through these mountains, these hills? The second thing it, it likely could tie to is other helpers' offers and the temptation to take those offers, now, in the Old Testament, there were certainly many pagans, many people who worshipped many gods. Where did they go to worship their gods? Literally up high, the high places, right? Because they moved closer to the heavens, to the skies, thinking that's where our God is. So we go up high. And so literally up in the hills, we would have pagans practicing their religions, right? You had priests who worshipped the sun, promising you protection from the, uh, from the scorching sun if you just paid the right fee, right? Perhaps it was a witch doctor who could give you the right incantation, a salesman who could offer you a good luck charm for the right sacrifice, or even fertility cults with prostitutes that offered fertility or uh, fruitfulness, rather, if you engaged in their worship. With these two likely threats from danger, and the temptations of other helpers offers. Again, the psalmists are saying, who will help me? And they actually give two answers in verse 2. If you look with me at verse 2, they say what? The Lord? And then they say, who made heaven and earth? Now, you can notice this, that Lord there is not spelled, right, capital L and little O-R-D, but it's spelled with a capital L-O-R-D. This name here that is used, and you should notice this every time when you're reading it, what name are they using for God? This is not a generic name that's used. This is, this is the covenantal name. This is the, the private, special name that God gave only to his people. You're likely familiar with the story where God right, speaks out of the burning bush right, to Moses. Moses says, who should I say is sending me? This is back in that time when God was going to save them out of Egypt, right? what the Passover is remembering. And God had called Moses, and Moses said, who should I say is going to send me? And the Lord says, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. 
which we translate as Yahweh. And so this is what the name is here for Lord. The psalmist isn't crying out to some indefinite, right, unknown, not yet proven God. No, instead, it's the God who has said to them, you are mine. I am yours. That's the one that the psalmist is crying out to. Now, in that world, there are many people who serve many gods, and perhaps they could believe that one of their gods said to them, you are mine, but that doesn't prove that that God can actually help them. Why? Why can this Lord help them? Why can this Lord help them? The second part of verse 2 tells us, and the psalmist reminds himself of this. The psalmist say this, he's our personal Lord, and he is powerful to be trusted. Why? Because he made the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. There's this literary device in the text. Uh, and it's used in the Old Testament, and we still use it today. It's called a merism. Sometimes people call it a merismus. But it's where you name two opposite or contrasting things in order to say both those things and everything in between. Confusing? So we do it like this. We say, if, so, if one of our children runs off, we say we searched high and low. Right? We searched near and far, which means what? We searched everywhere, right? So two contrasting things and everything in between. And so what they are saying here is that when they say that God made the heavens and the earth, they're saying that this one, this God, is one who made everything. There's nothing that exists, nothing that is, unless this God says so. Right? There's no galaxies out there, no skies above, no hills, no rivers, no sports, no art, right? no music, no sound of your children's laughter in your ears, unless this God has made it. That's what they're saying. And so why do they say this in verse 2? Is because they're reminding themselves true help, true keeping, can only have its origin in the creator God, who is theirs, who is theirs. So in, the, in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist in the shadow and the danger of the coming hills is singing this. He's saying, our help doesn't come from pagan priests or hucksters in the hills. No, our help comes from the one who made and upholds all of creation. And he happens to be ours. And we are his. Right? That's where their helps. That's the help that they're singing about. Uh, in 1965, the Beatles also were singing about help. It was their title track on one of their albums. And the second verse of the song goes like this. He, they say, and now my life has changed in oh so many ways. My independence seems to vanish in the haze. Every now and then I feel so insecure. I know that I just need you like I've never done before. Dramatic changes. Independence shifting or vanishing. Increased insecurity and danger lurking with every new current event or news story? The 2020s decade, anyone? Is that not the last few years of our lives at the very least? It's the hilly anthem that we are living in. And Americans of every shape and color and political preference have felt this at some level. And they, and we, right, we've all reached out for something. We've all seen the hills and wanted to be kept. And there are so many attractive offers made to us, is there not? Maybe you're not tempted to worship the sun god religion or to hang out with that local witch doctor, right, for the right incantation. But perhaps for you, the offer of success or the, the offer of people's praises 
is what will sustain you, you think, right? If I just look, sound, feel successful, I can make the journey through these hills. Maybe it's the offer of hobbies to distract you from the danger of life. There's video games and streaming services, social media, puzzles, or a perfectly kept property. Plenty of things to distract us on the way. Perhaps it's the offer of self-help. <clears throat> like my friend Aaron, right? Help comes from where? Me. In 2021, the self-help industry was an $11 billion industry. If I tell myself I'm enough, I can make it. Maybe you do something else ritualistically, right? Maybe it's a stretching, a breathing, a meditation, a routine. That routine is what's going to get you through the uncertainty of life, you think. Maybe you're tempted with the offer that I am prone to in self-medicating, right? We have our coffee, our sugar, our late-night pizza, or that next row of Oreos, perhaps, right? thinking that will get us through. In truth, many in our nation and in the world look to the government to be their keeper, their true helper. Feed me, clothe me, keep me healthy, keep me healthy, O government. One commentator named Peter Hitchens, he says this, he says, modern politics is so blasphemous because people have placed onto the shoulders of politicians and the government the things that they used to put into the hands of God. Can the government keep you? No. No government can. Only one government where there is a King Jesus who reigns. And only that Lord can keep us because he made heavens and earth. He upholds all of creation. And so the question is, if that is who we are singing to, if that is who the psalmist was and that we, if you trust in Christ, sing to, how do we live daily like an eternally secure people? Well, number one, we acknowledge the offers we're taking. What offer are you taking? And we confess that as sin to God. The idea of confession is just agreement. We're saying to God, yes, you already know. You already know what I'm taking. And we confess that sin to God, and then instead we believe upon the maker of heaven and earth, the one who offers us, if you trust me as your God alone, I will keep you forever. So daily living like a kept person looks like waking up in the morning and not reaching for your phone, not reaching for the news, but reaching out to the Lord. You look forward to the day, to the hills, to the offers that are going to come, and you say, who will help me? Perhaps this is your application even this week. Practice it this week. The coming days, wake up and look at Psalm 121 and consider the dangers coming and say, my helper, my keeper is the Lord, the upholder of all creation. Well, <clears throat> God not only upholds all of creation, but verses 3 through 6 tell us that he is undistracted in his care which again means that we can live daily like a people who are made eternally secure. Now, if you look with me at verse 3, verses 3 through 6, verse 3 is written as a statement, right? In the Hebrew, there's, a, there's some debate on whether this is a statement or a, or a question or a plea, right? Saying, may he, so instead of he will not let your foot be moved, but perhaps it's May he not do this, or may he not let your foot be moved. May he who keeps you not slumber. Now the reason for this type of thinking about this is you have to remember the context of these psalms and many psalms is them singing back and forth to one another. 
And so some commentators say in verses 3, the question is being asked or the request is being made. And in verse 4, a new voice comes in. And the new new voice says this. It says, Behold, the one who has always kept his people, he will neither slumber nor sleep. The psalm is singing, he's saying that God kept Israel right back in the Passover, right when that first happened, what we're remembering. But he also kept his people in the promised land. He kept them when they went into exile, saying he actually even went with them in Ezekiel. He brought them back to the promised land. See, the singer in verse 4 is assuring the first, because God has always kept you, you can be certain he will not fall asleep on you. That singer continues on, whether it's a different singer or the same one, he continues on in verses 5 and 6 and says, The Lord is your keeper, giving you shade from the scorching sun. Sunstroke and dehydration, right, are real threats to the traveler. But notice the singer also references the moon by night. Danger in traveling at night. We could certainly understand that. Fear felt in the darkness. But it's likely that what's even in their minds in the ancient world is how... Uh, is, is the superstition of how a full moon could perhaps cause lunacy, right? which maybe we think that's strange to be superstitious, but how many of us have had sleepless nights? How many of us have laid awake at 2 a.m. with crazy thoughts? How many of us have woken up angry, scared, or suspicious of the one you love? Notice here one other thing. The psalmist is running the same play. He's talking about a merism again, right? The sun, neither the sun nor the moon nor anything in between will strike you. He's saying that he's bringing it even just to one full day, right? God throughout the day and throughout the night will keep you. He's undistracted in the care that he provides. Two years ago, uh, coming up here in May, my, my father's birthday is in May. We we're at my parents' house, and the home that they live in is this long, unfenced backyard now. And my two oldest daughters, Zoe and Nora, uh, were playing in the backyard with, uh, with their cousin, and I was tossing wiffle balls to my uh, one, one day, probably, uh, Major League Baseball star, Finn. I hope not. But uh, he was swinging away at them. And at the same time, I heard a shout, and I heard a loud giggle. The shout was Zoe saying, Dad, Nora's running away. The loud giggle was Nora running away, right? And as I turned, I saw her turning the house just behind my parents, heading towards the road. And I took off running, right, shouting her name. And as I turned the corner, I saw Nora there in the middle of the street with a car slowing down so as to not hit her. Praise God, she was fine. I probably wasn't in that moment. But the guilt is immense in such a moment. As a father, am I able to keep or care for my children? Can I keep them safe? Am I a bad dad? See, parents, thus, here is a difference, parents. This is a difference between God and us. God is never tending to one in such a way where you are out of his sight. As a man, I can only pitch one wiffle ball and keep track of other children. The same for you. God is not like that. God is never tending to one in a way in which you are out of his sight or care. God is never lost in his own thoughts. God is never bored with you, scrolling on his phone or just trying to finish the game. That is not the Lord that we serve. 
His interest does not wax. It does not grow weary. It will not wane. He's undistracted in that care. And that should press us. If you believe in this Lord, why do we not sing like the psalmist does? They're the ones who are singing about his care. Why do we not ask God for his care in every little mundane thing? Now, it may be that you're already taking other offers, thinking that's going to help you get through. But it may be that we don't think he's an unfailing keeper. We, we don't think he's perhaps all that interested in the day-to-day mundane things between the sun and the moon of our days. Sure, we know we should probably cry out with cancer, shattered marriages and divorce, bankruptcies and disease. Yeah, we must cry out then. But what about with stubbed toes, with lost keys, or lost wallet? What about with your child's bad attitude or your bad attitude? We perhaps think those are below God's pay grade. God is too overqualified, right? He's upholding the universe by the word of his power. Why? Why a Tuesday at 8 p.m. should I trouble him? Or a Thursday at 2 a.m. make my requests known? We can treat God as if he is like a divorced parent. There's visitation rights on the first day of the week. We'll talk to you the next week, Lord, as if he is not there throughout the week in every single moment. It may be that we think God is simply so tired of our wandering wills and our half-hearted obedience that we're just too ashamed to come and ask God to keep us, to care for us. Friends, this is not so. He keeps his people always. The text says he will not let their foot be moved, not letting the sun or the moon or anything in between consume them. And so in the mundane... In the stub toes, the lost keys, bad attitudes with mom and dad about the chores that you have to do again, or mom and dad when they complain about the chores they have to do again and you have a bad attitude, right? even those moments, we make it known. My curly-haired Nora, the one who was in uh, the traffic's way, perhaps has learned better than anyone else I know that in the mundane things that are troubling, she'll collapse on the floor and she'll say, Jesus, change my heart. Like, how have you learned at five what I fail to do much later in life? The mundane, Jesus changed my heart. Your care is undistracted even for this little thing. And so, friends, we, we live like eternally kept people when we bring the mundane to God. When we realize that when we make our voice heard to the Lord, he's never in the other room saying, yeah, give me a minute. And when we do that in the big things and in the little things... By the work of the Holy Spirit in us, it retrains retrains us that our knee-jerk reaction becomes always crying out, where are my keys? Jesus, help me. I have a bad attitude. Lord, keep me, please. That's how we daily live like those who who are eternally secure. We name the big things and the minute things in the minute-to-minute of the day. And we do that because he's an unfailing keeper who is undistracted. Sun, moon, anything in between. His care is constant for those who trust in him. So we've seen that God is our unfailing keeper who upholds all of creation, right? We see that he is undistracted in his care. And finally, we see in the third thing that he is unrelenting. In verses 7 through 8, if you look with me, he is unrelenting. 
Notice this, again, this unequivocal language. Verse 7 says, we'll be protected from all evil. The psalmist doesn't even need a merism here, right? He just says all, all evil. And he also uses the word for life, which doesn't just address like external things out there in the world, but it actually deals with internal things in here as well, and in here as well, and perhaps in here as well. He's saying that he'll keep us in all those things. But verse 80 goes on and says that the Lord takes care of us when we leave the front door and when we return to it. The duration of God's keeping is both for today and forevermore. It's all-inclusive. If we, or as we rather, come to the end of Psalm 121, if you haven't asked it yet, you should be asking it now. Can this really be true? Can God really keep me in this way? Perhaps for you today, the last thing you feel is kept. This sounds like a platitude. The last thing you feel is protected, cared for. Perhaps for you, you say, my life has been suffering. I've had threats from within me and without me. My loved ones aren't kept. What can God possibly mean in Psalm 121? Can this really be true? As a father of young children, we read many books, and one of my favorite authors is uh, Dr. Seuss. And it's perhaps because it's, he's, he's credentialed, right? He's a doctor. Um, but one of the books that he writes that's my favorite to read is Oh, the Places You'll Go. Oh, the Places You'll Go. And there's one section where he writes this. He says, Oh, the places you'll go. You'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers who, who, who soar to high heights. You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed. You'll pass the whole gang and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you fly, you'll be the best of the best. Wherever you go, you'll top all the rest. Except when you don't. Because, well, sometimes you won't. I'm sorry to say, but sadly it's true that bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. Dr. Seuss gives these absolute encouraging maxims you can and will do it no questions asked but yet he follows it with bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you which may leave us wondering why does dr seuss say what psalm 121 doesn't dr seuss acknowledges that suffering is real life is not always good i don't always feel kept and perhaps you think that psalm 121 has missed your story or miss the, the story of the world that you live in and watch on the news every day. And if you think that, perhaps you're tempted to believe that God isn't real. Or that perhaps he's distracted, or worst of all, he's real, but he just doesn't care about you. But listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 21, 16 through 18. I'll read it for you. Luke 21 16 through 18. Jesus is just a few days before his, his crucifixion, and he's speaking to his disciples, and indeed he's speaking to us. He says this, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Here it is. But not a hair of your head will perish. Do you hear the promise, I will keep you? In the same context of, you will be persecuted. 
Good news, bad news, you will be delivered over to death, even by loved ones. The promise is that the singers are singing about in Psalm 121, they're not superficial. They're not false platitudes. They're not saying you'll never face trouble, theft, pain, disease, rejection, loss of a loved one, or death itself. No, when we read Jesus' words in Luke 21, we see that the scriptures are well aware of what happens in this life. Mortgage payments are too high. Stomachs are too empty. Leaders are too wicked. Parents don't love enough and children die young. That's the world we live in. That's the story that we live in. And, Psalm, and what we read of Jesus in Luke 21 is acknowledging this. We live in a world where there are sufferings and yet a promise that not a hair of your head will perish. In our story, in the story that Psalm 121 is nestled into in this fullness of the scriptures, it's the same story where God would not spare his own son. No, but would give him up for his people to redeem his people. Why? So that if you believed, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be kept forever. Romans 8.18 it says this, it holds together these things just as Jesus' words do. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Sufferings of the present time, not, not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. You see, we may not understand all that happens to us in this life or in this world, but the verse says, if you trust in Jesus Christ... If you trust in Jesus Christ, all the danger, evil, suffering in this life, in this world, it cannot even compare. It cannot even compare with the glory that's going to be revealed. Later, uh, in Romans 8, 28, he goes further, right? For those who have been called according to his purpose, God will use all things for good. God will not allow things to go unredeemed. Even all the bad things, the suffering will be redeemed. Or even at the end of Romans 8, right? He says that, right, if you belong to the Lord and believe in him, neither height nor depth, right, neither angel nor demon, neither uh, life nor death can separate you from the love of God, which is yours through faith in Christ. And so the singers of Psalm 121 are God's people traveling. They're looking back to redemption. They're traveling and they're looking forward to a, new, to a Jerusalem where they will celebrate with their God and with people. Friends, Psalm 121 is for us to sing. Why? Because we look back to a redemption moment of Christ crucified and risen. And we are travelers on the road. We are looking and waiting for redemption to finally be realized in, a, in the capital city in Jerusalem. New Jerusalem, which Revelation in Hebrew says. We can sing this song along with the psalmists. And so if you trust in Christ, what this passage is showing us is that there is a keeping by God that nothing can threaten in this life. There is a keeping by God that nothing in this life can threaten. So how do we live in such a way as though we're daily kept, eternally secure. We're only truly able to do this when we hold in tension the sufferings of the present time and the unrelenting keeping of God. And indeed, we need the Spirit of God to establish such faith in us as we sing this song by faith. But there's another thing we must acknowledge in the Psalms. It is not one man 
kicking rocks down the road and singing a song to himself. No. This is a singing family. This is singing travelers. And so we live eternally secure when we as the people of God, if you've trusted in Christ, when you continue to come back every Sunday and we continue to sing to one another. Right? You're not just singing for yourself. You're not just singing just to the Lord. But you're singing for the person next to you who wonders, am I kept? Will God keep me tomorrow? Or my loved ones in the day after that? You travel not alone. You continue to commit to the body of Christ. And together we hold these tensions. One side sings, may he keep you. And the other side says, behold, yes, he will. We continue to return and sing to one another. Dr. Seuss, he goes on to describe uh, present sufferings like this in that same book. He says, all alone, all alone is something you'll often be. When you're alone, there's a very good chance you'll meet things that scare you right out of your pants. There are some down the road between hither and yon that scare you so much you won't want to go on. Dr. Seuss is dead wrong. You see, when we trust in Christ and we commit to his body, the unfailing keeper has a rewrite. All alone is something you'll never be, whether you like it or not. You'll be kept by me. God upholds all of creation. Live like a kept people. Live like a kept people by not reaching for your phone, for the news, but for the word of God. Singing the song, where does my help come? And you say it's from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. God is undistracted in his care for you. Live like a people kept this week by training yourself to cry out in the mundane, Jesus, change my heart. Jesus, help me in the mundane. And God unrelentingly keeps you with a keeping that cannot be threatened by anything in this life. By asking the Spirit to sustain you, to hold together these things in the midst of trial and trouble. And when you wonder, am I kept? And continue to return and faithfully sing to one another. You are kept, yes, you are, by the unfailing keeper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you have made all things. And you are not only the maker, but you are the redeemer. You've created everything from the sun to the moon and everything in between, from the heavens and the earth and anything else that exists. And so, Lord God, we pray Lord, would you continue to convince us by your spirit that you indeed are one who can keep us, that not a hair on our head will be touched if we indeed have trust in the Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. God, give us that gift of faith and continue to bring us back to not only sing and not only pray on our own, but to sing together with the family traveling caravan that we are heading to the new Jerusalem when our redemption that has already happened in Christ becomes fully our sight. It's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.